This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Philip Rubenstein is a trustee of the International Center for Jewish Studies and a former board member of the British Israel Communications and Research Center, better known as BICOM. He was also the director of the all-party parliamentary war crimes group, which campaigned to change the law in the UK to enable the prosecution of Nazi war criminals living in the UK. He is my guest now to talk about, and don't be shocked by what I'm going to say, whether there is any similarity between Renaissance philosopher Nicola Machiavelli and, wait for it, Jewish views of political leadership. Philip, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me a little bit about Machiavelli. I ought to just give some context here. So this was part of a lecture series that many people contributed to on Lockdown University, which is a kind of South African, UK, American collaboration over, over lockdown. And this was a series on, on Renaissance Italy. So I, I thought it'd be really interesting to look at Machiavelli because he has the most appalling reputation, which he's had for 500 years. And to a large extent, when we hear of Machiavelli and we think of people who are Machiavellian, we think of people who are unscrupulous, cruel, cynical, out for themselves. And Machiavelli's ideas, Machiavelli's time were were very different. So he's a really interesting uh, subject for study. But what made you think, fine, I'm giving a lecture, Machiavelli's my man. What Do you have a specific interest in that time period or politics or leadership? Well, I, I have a real interest in politics and in political leadership. So this is where it stems from. In the UK at the moment, we're going through one of our regular bouts uh, of of shouting foul to, to politicians. We've been engulfed in the last few weeks in, I would say by, let's say by South African standards, fairly minor political scandal, uh, but we seem to get a lot of them. I mean, I was looking earlier today at one of the uh, one of the British news magazines, and there's a cartoon with a member of parliament sitting behind a desk saying, the only thing I'll do for money is anything. So there is this real kind of distrust of politicians, which, which I, I think is common throughout all liberal democracies. And what's interesting is that is when you read Machiavelli, it re, it's so fresh because this is absolutely what he's talking about. Can we trust politicians? What's the basis of trust? And should politicians be good, honest, decent people? And his view is actually probably not. You said he was um, a product of his time. He lived in very, very different times. But human nature doesn't change very much, does it? And your argument is that to be a good politician, you do need to be a bit Machiavellian, correct? His time was the, the late 1490s, early 1500s in a hugely unstable uh, Renaissance Italy where the Medicis, who'd been ruling for 100 years or so, had been kicked out. France, Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, as well as the papal states uh, below Florence, were all vying for control. And there was a whole series of coups and counter coups uh, and uh, pillaging of cities. So anyone who lived through those times really experienced instability. And his view, and, you know, if you think about the history of the state of Israel over the last 70 years, it's not so very different. His view is that little Florence lived in a dangerous neighborhood. And the most important quality of a leader was 
to bring stability and calm. And in order to do that, you can't be you can't be the nicest guy in the room. You need to have all of the tools in the armory. And for him, that means you need to be able to lie when necessary, to deceive and to use force. Never use more force, never lie more or deceive more than you need to. So restraint is really important. But if you can't do those things, you've got no business being in politics because it's a rough, tough game. And when you think about it, he's correct, is he not? Um, you can't go into politics being nice and promising everybody everything because at some point you've got to protect your own citizens, your own country, and you've got to do whatever it takes to do so, correct? I think I mean, every now and again, we have in history these kind of these great flashpoints where people discuss these issues. And um, at the end of the First World War, there was a very big debate in Germany about what kind of person they need after the Kaiser uh, to be the ideal leader. And many people were uh, were very keen on on the kind of the philosopher king type leader. And uh, Weber, who was a great social writer, uh, gave this great lecture uh, on uh, politics as a vocation, and effectively said we he said probably the kind of person who who is ideally suited to be a politician isn't a philosopher. It's probably a lawyer because lawyers are, are used to deceiving and lying. And we need someone who's cunning rather than someone who's always honest and true. So I think we've always had these uh, debates. I'm also got a great interest in, in Judaism and Jewish studies. So for me, it was kind of quite natural when thinking about Machiavelli at the back of my mind to think, well, where does this all fit in with the Jewish view of political leadership? So it was a great opportunity to go back to the sources, not least because, I mean, one of the surprising things about reading Machiavelli is he devotes a few pages to his great political leadership heroes. He's got a few of the people who you might expect in there, the classical heroes, but he's also got Moses in there as well. And when, I think when most of us think about Moses, Moshe, as a political leader, we think about his humility, don't we? Mianachi, what, who am I to lead the people? But Machiavelli is having none of it. He says, well, actually, the thing I admire about him is that he's an armed prophet. And he's referring to Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the tablets of stone, seeing the children of Israel who had got so impatient they're worshipping a golden calf. He smashes the stone. His brother Aaron, who is the conciliator, says, please don't be angry with them. He said, you know what they're like, and uh, you've been away for a long time. And Moses is having none of this. So he calls over the Levites, who are his Praetorian guard, and he orders the perpetrators to be slain. And I mean, the Bible says in an incredibly matter of fact way, you know, that that day, 3000 men were slain. And Moses style here is to be brutal and swift and then move on. And this is what Machiavelli admires. When you look at the Jewish of uh, kingship in the Tanakh, both in Deuteronomy and then in in the second uh, part, which is uh, Ketuvim. The Jewish view of kingship is incredibly ambivalent. We have the prophets who find the whole idea of having a king is incredibly offensive to God. And so they rail against the idea of having a king. We have, uh, after the children of Israel enter uh, the promised land, there's 200 years without a king. I mean, it's the most extraordinary political experiment of kind of a federation of distributed leadership. It doesn't seem to work very well, but it's a very brave 
experiment. And when we do have kings, what's amazing is the Bible really shows them warts and all. So you think about the three most famous kings. Saul is shown as a, a military failure. I mean, that was his great claim to fame, and he doesn't succeed. David, who is the most successful of all of the kings, his character very clearly changes for the worse when he becomes king, to the extent that he's prepared to murder a man, to marry his wife. Uh, David overtaxes uh, people, and he makes them endure forced labor. And of course, he's then followed by Solomon, who, again, you know, for all of his wisdom and his shrewdness, is deeply unpopular and is shown to be deeply unpopular because in order to build his beautiful palaces, he massively overtaxes the people. And he even uh, sells many of them into, um, into slavery in order to service his own debts. So we have the Bible is telling us that uh, even though kings are often necessary, I mean, it was because of kingship that the Philistines were able to be resisted, that kingdoms were able to be unified, that stability was brought. But you pay a very big price and you have to surround leaders with checks and balances. This is a very big message from Machiavelli and it's a very big message from Judaism as well. So I'm pleased you brought it up because it's the checks and balances ultimately that both are calling for. Machiavelli is not saying you can do whatever you can at any cost. He's saying there have to be checks and balances. Do you want to talk a little bit about checks and balances and whether you think there ever are enough of them? <laughs> well, so Machiavelli wrote, he wrote, he had two very, he had two works on politics. The first one is the one we all know, which is The Prince, which is a, it's a hundred page job application. He'd been kicked out uh, of the job that he loved. And he was writing this for the Medicis, who were now back in power. And it was his way of saying, I'm good at this. Please let me back in. Unfortunately for him, it wasn't very successful. But he also wrote a second work, which is, in many ways, it's been much more influential, which is called The Discourses on Livy, which is really all about how you build a th and sustain a republic. And he talks about the institutions of state. He talks about the rule of law. He talks about all of the checks and balances that you would have actually in a modern democracy. It's a very, very modern work when you actually look at what he's uh, he's written. And there is a, as I said, there's a kind of a yin-yang, I think, because both in Machiavelli's work, but also in Judaism, we recognize that the kind of person who's going to be most effective as a ruler is probably someone who's going to be deeply flawed. It's even more important that we surround these people with all of the institutions that will make sure that they uh, don't have to exercise too much self-restraint because the system itself is going to uh, to restrain them. And there's a there's a great paradox of power, which is that we seek people who are going to be strong enough to provide us with security and prosperity. But we know that if they're too strong and if we don't put restraints around them, then that way lies the road to tyranny. So, I mean, politics, I think in, in these worlds, it, when you strip everything away, you know, is, uh, it's, it's quite visceral, uh, and, and you can't go into it or look at it with any with any delusions that we're going to be electing saints. It's so interesting what you say, because any leader you're going to elect is flawed. What kind of the, depending on the kinds of flaws they have, depending on the outcomes. And you'd rather actually have a leader who 
is flawed in that is power hungry rather than he's flawed in his weakness because power hungry in a way you can put checks and balances on whereas weakness anybody could be running actually the power behind it's finding do do you think that certain kinds of people who want power are certain types of people and they have definite similar characteristics i think there is something strange in anyone who actually wants to climb to the top of the greasy pole there's a certain there's a certain kind of drive and determination and ambition there that you don't often find in uh, and a willingness to put up with kind of public opprobrium um, i mean the ones the ones who are most successful and who've who've achieved the most tend to be people who've actually gone into the job with those things but also with very deep moral purpose with a willingness to be unpopular and do unpopular things and not mind uh and uh also and i think this is really easy to underestimate but when you actually think of the most successful political leaders well it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation i've really enjoyed it i've learned a lot um thank you very much for for joining me and talking a bit about uh, what we can actually if we take all the the noise around it learn from machiavelli Thank you very much and I'm wishing you and and uh, all your listeners a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you you too Shabbat Shalom.